Good morning, everyone. Glad you're here today. If you haven't taken your Bible out yet to that passage, please do so. And um, join me as uh, we pray and ask for God's help. Father in heaven, we come this morning with an important text in front of us, and I uh, feel the weight of trying to explain uh, this, uh, of all parables, one of the most important. And so I pray today that you, Holy Spirit, would honor the word about Christ, would honor his teaching and allow it today to fall on hearts that have been prepared. Lord, I believe there are people here today that in your purpose and in your plan are here because this text needs to land on their heart today. And I pray that you would give them ears to hear, not just physical ears, um, Lord, but spiritual ears, the kind of ears that listen and feel conviction and believe in the heart. This is true And now I must do something. And so I pray today that you'd birth people into your kingdom because of this text today. And I ask you to do this for the name, for the honor, and the glory of your Son, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. It always fascinates me what stories and events and sermons are recorded in the four Gospels that we have in our Bible. Because there are some things that the four Gospels um, only record once, like the parable of the Good Samaritan. There's other events that all four Gospels record, like the baptism of Jesus. And the reason that's significant, this harmony of these Gospels, is because John, in chapter 20 and verse 31, says, Many other things Jesus did, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in Him, you may have life in His name. In other words, there's lots of other things that Jesus did, and John only chose those particular things that he felt like were necessary in order to make the point of his gospel. And so what I find interesting is that each of the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, do the exact same thing. They determine what it is that Jesus said, what it is that he did, and then select out of that pool of things that he did or said, and they put them in their Gospels, so that when the four writers all have the same event, you know that it must be very significant. Now what's interesting is that this parable that we're talking about today, the parable of the soils, is one of 24 parables recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Now, John, interestingly, doesn't record any parables. I don't know why, he just didn't. But when it comes to Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we have 24 parables, and of those 24, only three are listed in all three Gospels. And the one parable that's first on the list of Matthew, as he begins to talk about parables, is this one, the parable of the sower or the parable of the soils. Why Why is this significant? Here's why. I think that this parable, more than any other parable, is the most important parable that Jesus gave. The prominence of it, its position in Matthew, its quotation in all three Gospels, almost verbatim, and its unusual explanation by Jesus after he gives the parable indicate that this parable is really, really significant. In fact, I would argue it's first in the class of all parables. In fact, I wish that as many people who know the story of the Good Samaritan would know this parable and understand it. Because I think if you don't understand what Jesus is saying in this parable, you don't have any understanding what the parable of the Good Samaritan is about. As well, I think this parable, probably more than any other, is the kind of message that needs to be communicated 
to the evangelical church of the United States of America that is filled with people who have heard the reality of who Jesus is, but yet remain genuinely unconverted. People who are filled, in churches that are filled today, people who are filling pews and seats and coming to honor Mother's Day and visiting a church and who know who Jesus is, they know the facts about the gospel, but the reality is they remain unconverted. The point of this parable is this. It is that not all hearing leads to life. What Jesus is talking about here in this parable, remember there's one point for every parable and then there's two different perspectives on it. Unbelievers, it reveals truth. Unbelievers, it hides truth. And this particular parable is about the problem of unbelief. The fact that people were hearing who Jesus is, they're hearing his words, and yet in a crowd of people there were some who were following him and there were others who either didn't understand what he had to say or in other cases disagreed with what he had to say, or even further wanted to kill him because of what he said. So what we have here is a story, a parable, to try and help us understand that not everybody who hears, not everybody who knows facts, information about the Bible, about who Jesus is, actually is genuinely converted, that not all hearing leads to life. The reason that Jesus gave this parable was to help the disciples realize that as he's talking to this crowd of people, and some are following Jesus and some aren't, the disciples could look out in the crowd and they could maybe see physical responses, people getting angry, maybe nodding their heads. And what Jesus does is he unfolds the human heart and he shows them four different examples of what's going on inside the soul. So all the disciples could see was the crowds. And Jesus wanted to show them, although it's the same message, the same messenger, the same content, it is falling on different soils, different hearts. So, through this parable, Jesus is going to show them and us four pictures of what is happening inside the hearts of people. This parable reveals what is unseen. Now we're going to begin to look at this by first examining just the story of the parable, try and pick up just the line of thought. And it begins with a sower who goes to sow. Verse 3. He told, and he told them many things in parables, saying, a sower went out to sow. Now, in order to understand what's happening here, a little bit of cultural background. When a sower went out to sow, um, he would have a bag of seed, and this will kind of bring back maybe some flannel graph memories for those of you who grew up in church. And he's got this, got this bag of seed, and he goes to spread that seed. But he's not spreading it like LeBron James before a basketball game, you know, throwing it up like this. He's not just throwing the seed all over the place, just where, cause seed's expensive. What he's doing is he takes it out of the bag, and he's, he's dropping it in rows on either side. And then he would step, and he would drop it on a row, and if we understand the dynamics of agriculture during Jesus' day, likely what happened is he planted it on untilled soil and then went back after he could see where the rows were and then went and covered it. So he first lays the seed down on either side of the path and then goes and, and mixes the dirt up together in order so that that soil and seed are combined. 
So Jesus then paints a picture of the sower who goes off to sow and identifies that the seed is not just spread willy-nilly. It's intended in order to yield a harvest, but the seed doesn't fall on consistent soil. It's as though when the sower goes back to mix the soil, he discovers that some of the seed has fallen to the wayside, some is in the type of soil that's hard to mix, and in others it's got sort of weeds and thistles in it, and then there's another soil, only one brand of soil that's actually good and produces crops. So each of the four soils are important. Verse 4 indicates that some seed fell along the path. Now, that would have been the walkway between the furrows, or it could have been another path that was cut across the field. But regardless, the point is is that this seed lands on hard-packed dirt where people have walked. It's, it's a grass that should be growing, but because... Your kids walk there all the time. There's no grass that's growing. It kills it, sort of like where the three-point line is on our yard, where our boys are off the pavement, and they find the three-point line, and they pack the dirt down. Grass doesn't grow there, and I'm not bitter about it. At least not usually. So the seed remains exposed, and then because the seed's exposed, it makes for good bird seed. The birds see it, and there's a seed, and they take it, and it's gone. The second type of soil is described as rocky ground in verse 5. Other seeds fell on rocky ground. Now don't think of this as ground that's got pebbles or stones in it or big rocks. Think of it instead as a soil that's shallow and then has bedrock underneath it. The kind of soil that you could initially dig and think, well, i got good soil here, and then suddenly you hit hard rock. It's like the soil that I discovered when I put in a basketball goal in my um, driveway area and I used a post hole digger, and for the first three or four hits, I was like, this is going to be easy. Boom. And all of a sudden I went down a little bit further and and I found bedrock, hard clay that's packed and rocks, and in the next 45 minutes was a serious workout. So about six inches down is good soil, and then after that it's all hard bedrock. That's the image. Not, not soil mixed with rocks, but a little bit of soil and then bedrock. And then the third kind of soil he describes here as uh, that which fell among thorns. Don't think of this as he sowed it in the midst of a thorn bush. Think of this rather that he's laid his seed and as he mixes it, he doesn't realize that in his mixing, he's mixed good seed and bad. In our cultural context, it would have been those little white flying things that come over and they land in your yard. And before you know it, through a course of a few months, you see the emergence of the satanic dandelion in your yard. And you've realized that it's happened. The curse has given evidence in my yard. Lop its head off. Tear up the root. Declare yourself a victorious subduer of the earth, right? See, what happens is the seeds mix, and the result is that other plants grow along with the crop, and the effect is that the resources from the weeds rob from the crop that was intended to grow. If you want to know why your dandelions thrive when your yard dies, just pull up the root and you'll see a long tap root that goes down deep. It's that the dandelion has a hardier root system and can steal the resources from little innocent godly grass. That's what it is. So fight, fight the dandelion. 
and pray for the kingdom to come. Finally, we come to verse 8, where Jesus tells his listeners that some seed falls among good soil, and it produces grain. Verse 8 says, Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. So what we see here is that this soil um, produces a crop. Now this is the defining difference between the other three seeds and this one. Or other seeds, other three soils, excuse me, and this one. So there is a variety of causes that make the soil bad, those three cases. But the one characteristic of the three bad soils is that they produced nothing. And the characteristic of the good soil is that it produced much, in, in such case, three different descriptions, a hundredfold, sixtyfold, and thirtyfold. See, in Jesus' time, the average ratio of harvested grain to seed would have been eight to one. So to say that there's a harvest of thirtyfold, sixtyfold, a hundredfold, is a, a miraculous harvest. The point of this should be fairly obvious. And that is that the defining difference between bad soil and good soil is in terms of what is produced from the soil. Then Jesus ends with a somewhat familiar statement in the Bible indicating that we should listen carefully. He says, He who has ears, what does it say next? Let him hear. Similar to a statement that a dad might make to his children, Are you hearing what I'm saying? Yes, Dad. Then do it. Right? Are you listening to me? Yes. Then go do it. He who has ears, let him hear. So that's the story. Again, the main point is that not all hearing leads to life. In other words, it may look like it's all soil. It may look like it's all the same. You may have taken the same seed and planted it down. Same messenger, same seed. And the soil may even look the same, but the reality is the soil is not the same. And what will happen over time is you will be able to see what kind of soil this is based upon what is produced out of the soil. So, this text is all about hearing. And... Jesus then goes on to explain in verse 18 what the parable is all about. And he begins by saying, hear then. Verse 18 says, hear then the parable of the sower. If you were to look this up in the original language, you would find that the word you is the first word in the sentence. You hear. So when Jesus is saying hear, he's speaking directly to his disciples. You hear what the parable of the sower is all about. And the reason he says this is because, again, Jesus is explaining to his disciples that although there is the same messenger and the same message being delivered to the crowds, it is falling on different hearts. In other words, they may be all physically hearing the message of the kingdom, but they are not all spiritually hearing the method, the message of the kingdom. And that means that for many who were in Jesus' hearing, that hearing his message would not lead to life. So there's four different kinds of people. Let's look at them. The first one is the non-responsive. The first soil describes the person who hears, but they never do anything. 
They may love to hear. They may be around where they would hear a lot. But the defining mark of this person is while they hear and while they know, they never do anything with it. They think that hearing is what Jesus requires. They think that to know a truth is to have lived the truth. They think to have talked about the truth means that one has internalized the truth. The text says, anyone who hears the word of the kingdom and does, or when anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. So apparently this person is close enough to be able to physically hear the word about the kingdom, but there is a lack of spiritual understanding. Now, get this, they may understand it with their mind. They may know the facts. They may have heard it with their ears. But the problem is a spiritual understanding is not there. And I've seen it over and over. A person who knows who Jesus is may even know the content of the Bible well, may even know what it means to be a Christian. And I've met folks who have even explained the gospel to another person, even leading them to faith in Christ, yet the word never penetrated their own hardened heart. Their naturally deceived heart was unwilling and unable to respond to the truth of the word because of its conditioned hardness. This person has received the truth, but they have no spiritual understanding. It's so important for you to understand this because a real relationship with Jesus is not simply a assent to mental or intellectual facts. It certainly requires that at a minimum, but that's not it. And there are many, 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 many people who will spend an eternity in hell who knew who Jesus was, who could state what the Bible says, and yet had never given their heart and life to Him. So, true belief in Jesus involves a miraculous change of heart, a rebirth of the person that results then in spiritual understanding. Knowledge about Jesus, or knowledge what the Bible says, is not enough. Why do I say that? Because the devil knows the Bible better than any of us. He's been studying it longer than you and I have all been alive. He knows our systematic theology books. Don't you know he reads the books? And James 2 tells us that he knows and he trembles. Therefore, the question is not intelligence about Jesus. The question is allegiance to Jesus. The the difference between a devil, the devil or a demon, and a true follower of Jesus is not just facts, it's actually allegiance. So the non-responsive person thinks that if I just hear, if I just listen, if I just know, if I can regurgitate, if I can give, give, if I can give answers, if I can just do the things that people do when they're Christians, that I'm in. And the non-responsive person, though, never really repents, never bends the knee, never says, your Lord, your God, I'm not. Notice the effect. The evil one then comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. Here we see that the devil's activity is to try his hardest to keep people deceived, to keep them spiritually blind and dark when it comes to Jesus. Paul put it this way in 2 Corinthians 4, 
the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So what happens here is the devil seizes upon our naturally self-sufficient, self-satisfied, and self-righteous heart and designs methods to keep us self-satisfied, self-sufficient, and self-righteous. He uses false teachers. He uses personal pride, comparison. Well, I'm not as bad as my Aunt Millie. You should know she's a sinner. No, she's going to hell. Me? I'm a lot better than her. The offering of temporary happiness. All of these things he offers to us such that the person whose hard heart comes to hear the gospel simply looks at the gospel and says, I don't need that. I'm as happy as a lark. Whatever a lark is. I'm I'm happy. I'm happy. I'm satisfied. I got all this stuff. Look at how happy. I don't need the gospel. And the challenge is, is the non-responsive person looks at the gospel and thinks it's foolish, doesn't really even know there is a need when it's right in front of him or her. So the person is unconvinced about their need. And and the first thing that the unresponsive person or the non-responsive person has to get over is themselves. They have to come to a point where they are done with them. They're done with themselves. So that the first step is saying, my heart is hard and I can't fix it. Help me. I've made a mess of my life. So the best place to be if you're here today or hearing my voice and worship too or on a podcast or in this room this morning, the best place to be is the place where you would say, I have made a mess of my life. That's a person that Jesus can help. Not someone who says, there's no problem. That person is almost foolish like a child. Three weeks ago, I stopped by our um, daughter's Sunday school class between the first and second service, something I normally do because I don't see my kids off to church on Sunday. And so I just stop in to see how the class is going and just get a little Savannah hug. And I stopped in the class and she saw me and she said, Daddy! She went running over to me, and this poor little girl was in her way, and she went like this, and the girl took a deck, and they bumped heads, and she was crying, and so I was holding her, and she had this pretty little dress on, and I looked down at her feet, and her shoes were going like this, and she had her shoes on the wrong feet. Now, I know her brothers and her mom didn't put those shoes on that way. She probably took them off in the car and put them back on, because, you know, like a, a trundle bundle or a zipper, you know, putting on your own shoes is like a status symbol when you're four years old, you know. They must walk into Sunday school like, I put on my own shoes today. You know, I don't know what it is about that. So I said to her, hey, honey, your shoes are on the wrong feet. And as firm and as confident as you could as imagine, she said, no, they're not. And I was like, okay, I'm not arguing about this. I'm like, look at your feet. They're on the wrong feet. They don't hurt. And I was like, what is this? What do you mean they don't hurt? Like, that's the test? They don't hurt? I was like, here, do they hurt? No, I didn't do that. Here they hurt now? So I said, honey, look. So I sat her down on the table. I took her shoes off. And I said, look. And I showed them. And then she goes, oh, you're right, Dad. And her ignorance was clear to both her and me at that point. And then we could switch her shoes and put her feet on the right, put her shoes on the right feet. Until she recognized the need, there was going to be no action. In fact, there was only arrogant statements about why I was wrong and she was right. This is the heart of the non-responsive person who thinks that they're so right because there's no need. 
the seed falls on hardened soil and it just lays there because there's no sense of, well, why would I do anything with this? This is foolish, crutch, living, believing in Jesus. I'm good. And it is a mercy, my friend, when Jesus realizes or helps you realize that you are not good. You are bad, sinful, and need help. And that is mercy when that comes. The second soil is what we'll call the shallow person. This person is directly the opposite of the former because the word is now not resisted. On the contrary, it's received with joy and enthusiasm. This this person is pumped about the message of the kingdom. And they are all in. The last person was so unresponsive, but this person is too responsive. They're, they're too enthusiastic. And it's, it's almost as if Jesus anticipates that some people might hear about the first soil and think, oh, well, the problem is, is that the person didn't do anything about it. They weren't excited about the message of the kingdom. And then he throws this one in. <clears throat> as if excitement were a harbinger of true conversion. And he warns the disciples that emotional enthusiasm, or personal excitement, or deep-seated feelings is not necessarily a sign of real belief. He compares this person to a plant that has a thin layer of soil underneath it, and it sprouts up quickly. Notice that the word immediately is used twice in this section. It describes that it grows immediately, but the problem is that he has no root in himself, which means that the changes in him are merely external, they're emotional, but they're not deeply rooted in God-centered repentance. The proof comes when testing happens. Or hardship comes. The person signs up because they didn't want to go to hell. They, they, they wanted the abundant life. They heard the offering of having peace with God. And they signed up and they thought, this is great. Now I'm saved and now I know where I'm going. Now I've got my fire insurance, so to speak. And then the first trial or testing comes. Like, whoa, wait a minute. You didn't tell me that suffering was a part of the deal. I'm out of here. When tribulation, verse 21, or persecution arises on account of the word, they immediately fall away. Notice that the person falls away as quickly as they received. So people in this category have a religious experience, but true salvation has not come. And what gives evidence is time and testing. Now there are two implications of this that I think are Worth noting, there's many more, but two just that are on my heart. The first is this, that listen, when we're inviting people to respond to the gospel, we need to be careful that we not create a false trust in what they do. For instance, not create a false trust in raising a hand in a service, walking an aisle, putting their name on a card, or even praying the sinner's prayer. Even the notion of receive Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior was not a part of the nomenclature of the church prior to Charles Finney in the Second Great Awakening. And, and while praying a prayer is certainly part of conversion, perhaps even raising your hand could be part of it, maybe walking an aisle was an essential part of the conversion, the problem is that sometimes we talk about conversion as if those things are the sum total of it. It's especially important when it comes to how we present the gospel to our children. 
Listen, great skill and discernment is needed to be sure that our children really understand the gospel. I have seen many, many, many teenagers and many young adults question their faith because of an overemphasis on getting a child to pray a prayer as early as possible and then get baptized before the gospel is fully understood or fully believed. Now, there's a balance here, and I want to encourage you to not, don't stop sharing the gospel with children or others. And I'm so grateful for our Sunday school workers who during this very hour are doing a wonderful job of presenting a holistic view of the gospel. I simply want you to realize that our main task is to make disciples, not believers. And that there's a danger, some of us as parents are so concerned about my child not believing that you aren't warned about the possible, of a, about the possibility and the frightful reality of a false conversion. Where a child receives Christ or someone receives the Lord Jesus, quote unquote, not fully understanding what it is that they're actually doing. When I was uh, my last church, I was doing a VBS lesson, and at the end of it, I asked, um, had the kids put their heads down and eyes closed, and asked if they wanted to receive the Lord Jesus as their Savior, if they would raise their hand. And almost everyone in the room, about a hundred kids, raised their hand. And I knew at that point that I was not a master evangelist. <laughs> I knew that I'd done something wrong. It wasn't clear because surely not all of those children wanted to receive Jesus. Perhaps I I, I scared them. Perhaps there was something that I offered to them that was attractive. They weren't weighing the, the consequences. And then it was like the Lord brought to mind that the next thing from our lesson was fun time. And so I said to them, you know what, let's back up. and Let me put it this way. If you'd like to receive Christ today, I want you to know that afterwards there's going to be some counselors who are going to be available to you. And we'd like to talk with you. But if you come to talk with them, you're going to completely miss fun time. No bouncy ball, no dunk tank, no candy, no nothing. Anybody want to receive Christ now? (laughs) It's not how I said it, but the effect was that the numbers went in the tank. And it was a good reminder that we have to be careful. The other implication of this um, shallow person, shallow soil is this, is that the assurance of salvation must not rest solely on what you've done in the past. That assurance of salvation has to be rooted in what is going on presently in your life. It can't just be, well, when I was this age, I prayed this prayer and I received Christ, and the rest of my life I've been living like a heathen. If you have assurance, quote-unquote, that you're a genuine believer and you've lived like a heathen all your life, but you know that when you were five years old you prayed to receive Christ, I would tell you you ought not have assurance. You ought to be scared to death about being self-deceived. You see, assurance comes not only from actions of the past, it comes from verification of fruit in the present. And over and over and over, that is the tone of assurance in the New Testament. And what happens here is that Jesus identifies for us that response and emotions and enthusiasm are not clear indications that the person has really heard. That as quickly as they believed, 
they will likely quickly abandon. I, I know and this as a pastor, when someone new comes to the church and they're just all excited about the church, wow, this is awesome, this is so much better than my last church, and you're preaching so much better than my last pastor, and this is like the best thing I've ever heard. I know, it's maybe 18 months, and they're going to be saying that to someone else down the road. And that's just how we are as a people. And when that level of emotion is at that high, it's just a matter of time before the affection shift. The third soil is what we will call the distracted. Jesus now addresses the problem of divided allegiance. This is the soil with the weeds. This is the person who receives the word, but there's a problem. And this problem will only emerge over time. And it is that the person has intellectually grasped, they understand mentally the significance of the kingdom, And they're even attracted to Jesus. They like what he says. But the problem is that they have divided loyalties. They have a dual allegiance. The problem is that they simply add Jesus to one of the many things that they're attracted to. Jesus says in verse 22, The cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word. So it's that the world and its system and all of its cares and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word. So what is it about the world and riches that does this? Well, what happens here is that money and possessions, whether you have a lot of possessions or a little bit of possessions or a lot of money or a little money, money at any level can create feelings of security and exclusivity and pride and accomplishments. It can make you feel like you're somebody. I mean, think of the last time you bought a a new car to you. And you brought that car home, and you looked at yourself in the mirror when you were traveling. You're like, I am styling. I mean, you, you felt it, didn't you? Or when you bought a new outfit at the store, and you walked by the mirror, and you walked by the mirror... And you walk by and you're like, I look good. And you, you have all these things going on inside of your heart. Or you buy a piece of technology, some new phone. And then you put it on your, your, uh, your belt and then you walk around like this all day showing people. You know, you're like, look at that, check it out. And someone's like, dude, is that the new Droid VX PowerPoint Motorola iPhone phone? You're like, oh yeah, dude, there's like apps all over this thing. Let me see it. And you suddenly feel like you are the guy, the girl who's the early adopter. You've got it. You, you're, you are iPad man. People are like, dude, check it out. Look at this. It shows. Whoa. And suddenly a piece of technology, a new house, a car, a new outfit, a new boyfriend, a new girlfriend. Those things suddenly, they, they do something to the soul. And while a phone, a car, a house, a relationship aren't inherently bad, they can do something bad to us. They can make us feel godlike. They can make us feel powerful. They can make us feel triumphant. For instance, the close of a deal, a robust investment return, some enviable outfit or prestigious education, or or just the feeling that people are serving you can quickly make you feel as if you are God and you don't need to trust in anyone else. Jesus warns us here, That the security of money and the pursuit of things can choke out the one thing that is critical for true conversion. And that is trust in Jesus, not in yourself. 
He warns his disciple that it's, that it's hard for a rich man to hear. And here's why. Because he or she doesn't see their true need. It's masked by wealth and position and honor. So last week I was in Washington, D.C. for the National Day of Prayer. I was seated one row behind the uh, men and women of our congressional delegation. Mike Pence and a number of other folks were, were there. And it was just this, this beautiful room with lots of people. I was watching how they interacted with the congressional delegation and everything else. Uh, walking down a corridor in the Cannon office building. It's like 30 feet tall. I mean, the place just smelled of power. It just smelled of, of, um, of authority. And as I was sitting there with folks who are wonderful believers, it hit me why power can corrupt so badly. Help me to know how to pray for men and women who are gospel lights in our capital. To pray not only that they would have the right causes and the right words, but also that the environment of power wouldn't choke out the heart of the word. And that's not just true in the capital. That's true in your home. And that's why last Thursday when the stock market drops a thousand points, people freak out. Why? Because it's a crutch that creates security. The distracted. Here's the last one, and that is the receptive. We come finally now to the only soil that reflects uh, true conversion. And here is the man or the woman... The soil is good, and he or she understands this word that is given. And it means that they put it all together, and then he or she acts. So in the Bible, when you hear something and you get it, then you act on it. See, over and over, the Bible talks about fruit not as the source of true conversion, but as the evidence that real conversion has happened. So... More than understanding, more than just knowing who Jesus is, more than a belief that He is real, more than an emotional experience, more than even the perceived blessing of God, real conversion means spiritual fruitfulness that is miraculous. It means that God produces in you a new heart and that what comes out of your heart you know can't be you. So the evidence is not what you know. The evidence is not what you've done in the past. The evidence is what's going on right now. That's the evidence. Not the source of conversion, but the evidence that who you are is real. And that is why, friends, suffering and hardship and difficulty are so helpful. Because when the the legs are kicked out from underneath you and all you have is Christ, the question is, will that be enough? And when you know in the midst of suffering that all I have is Christ and it is enough, you know I am clinging to Him, but He is helping me cling to Him. And it verifies indeed I am a child of God. The harvest between the different soils is not the same. Some 100, some some 60, some 30. All of that to say that a life transformed by Jesus is filled by the Spirit and it produces long-lasting, miraculous fruit. But not all people bear the same amount of fruit. So the question is this. So who really believes? Well, the person who really believes is the person who, over the long haul, produces fruit. And that then leads us with the final question, and it's this. What do you hear today? 
What, what do you hear inside of your own heart? Because I suspect that there are people here today whose hearts are hard as stone. You, you, you look at the, the gospel, the presentation of who Jesus is, and, and nothing hits you anymore. In fact, you hear it and it seems silly. And, and I would just plead with you, if that's where you're at, that you would not harden your heart any day longer. I could also imagine there are some who, who are curious today. You're, you're interested in what Jesus could do for you. You, you think, oh, if he could do this and change this, then here would be my caution. Following Jesus is costly. It isn't just praying a prayer or having Jesus fix you. It involves the surrender of your life. Worth it? Beautiful? Absolutely. But it involves surrender. I can also imagine there are people who claim to know Jesus, but the real test through suffering verifies whether or not you are real. When God takes something away, you could be in the throes of that right now. And my encouragement to you would be, this is the moment, this is the hour for you to cling to Christ. This is the moment when suffering comes for you to verify all day long that you are real because trusting Christ means trusting nothing else. And finally, let me just call you to true conversion. The kind of relationship with Christ that you know who He is and you know who you are, but you come to the point where you say, I am done with myself, I receive Christ, change me, and then the evidence of that real relationship with Jesus is a spiritual fruitfulness that verifies that your belief is real. Listen to me. Not all of you who hear are really alive. You may be physically alive, but spiritually you're not. And the question is, who really believes? The one who really believes is the one who genuinely trusts in Christ, is born again by the Spirit, and then bears a lifetime of fruit, giving evidence that they have really heard and they're really alive. Father in heaven, we pray that you would take your word this morning and um, apply it to our hearts as only you can. That you would use the Spirit of God present right now and that you would bring people to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that there would be no hard, any more hardness of heart, no more shallow Belief, no more distracted belief, and that today, not emotionally, but not absent of emotion, not shallow in a shallow manner, but genuinely, that there would be men and women today who would surrender and say, Lord Jesus, I am done with me. I need to trust in you. And that you would create a new heart, a new mind, and a new life. That today, Lord, they would hear and that that hearing would lead to life. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you. I love you folks. Thanks for coming today.